Well, I have to admit that this Sunday every year, the one after Christmas and the one before everything really starts in the church again, uh, is always a little weird for me to preach on because in my 10, 11 years of, of ministry here at Tabry Free, I think I've spoken at all of them except for one. And really what it, what it means is that you didn't speak too much in the Christmas series, and then you don't speak too much in the New Year series, but you've got to find something in between because you're not the lead pastor, you're the other guy. And you've got to find something that kind of works with Christmas, but, not, but isn't quite Christmas, and you've got to find something that's going to work for the new series coming up, but you're not part of that new series as well. So this is the awkwardness of, of the associate pastor role as you go into this service, because we often get this one. I was texting some friends last night, and I was like, how many of you are doing the New Year service? And all of them, every single youth pastor that I text, they're like, yeah, I'm up. Uh, our associate pastor, they're like, yeah, I'm up. Uh, and, it's, and, it's a, and it's an interesting time, because you have to reject a little bit of the temptation just to do the kitschy thing of, oh, it's a new year, let's talk about that. But also, uh, it's a new year, so we should talk about that as well. So we're going to do that this morning. As I've been thinking a little bit about this week and what I can share, um, I kept being reminded of Christmas, probably mostly because I was in it, and uh, I felt like this Christmas particularly, I was spending a lot of time processing um, my feelings towards Christmas and the hope that it brings and the peace in the midst of a bit of just our own personal stuff as a family. And uh, I kept coming back to the story of, of, of the wise men, I think partially because during our Advent I didn't get time to, to share about it. But I was also thinking about this next year coming up and in some of my conversations with, with Pastor Ed and, and my, my hopefulness for, for where we're going as a church as we enter transition. And as I thought about the story of the wise men, I thought, I think that there's some things about the wise men that can really encourage us as we enter into a new year. Uh, And so I want to encourage you guys to join me this morning as we read Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. It'll be on the screen for you if you you don't have a Bible. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall come, from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest upon a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Some of you might be thinking, wait, Christmas is over, Brett. Why are we going back to the Christmas story? Um, 
Not to break your perfect picture of nativity, but the wise men weren't there the morning Jesus was born. Um, They weren't there at a manger or a barn. They came later, um, probably months later, maybe even up to a year later. We know that Jesus was certainly not older than two, but we also know from this text, and we'll, we'll explain a little bit of that as we go, that the wise men weren't there on that Christmas morning when the shepherds came. They came at a different time. And so as we look to post-Christmas, it's a fitting time to um, take a look at the story of the wise men and the things that we might be able to learn and be encouraged in. But first, who are these wise men? What do we know about them? In verse 1, we are introduced to the Magi, or Magoi, which is translated into wise men, but it's also the word we get for our magician. Um, now, there's lots of mystery that surrounds these guys. There's not a lot known. Um, they're not just general wise men, but men of science, most notably astrologers or students of the stars. But they would have been well-rounded in many different fields of knowledge, both scientific, religion, political. Um, and there are some things that we do not know about them, and some things we do. So first, the things we don't know. We don't know their number. Traditionally, we depict the wise men as three men, because there's three gifts given to Jesus. But we have no idea how many wise men there actually were with them. We know there was three gifts. There could have been 10, 20, 100. We just simply don't know. But we know there was three gifts. We know that they traveled together, but they probably wouldn't have traveled just the three of them, as we'll get to in a little bit, because that would be very uncommon for that time. There would have been servants and guards, etc. The common Christmas carol, We Three Kings, though well-intentioned, doesn't really give us an ac- uh, accurate depiction of these men. We're never told that they are actually kings. And we'll get to that a little bit more too. We don't even know their names for certain. Some records would indicate that their names are Melchor, Balthazar, and Gaspar. Some reports and scholars have depicted one as a, an Ethiopian, another is from India, and one that is Greek. There have also been claims that they were baptized by Thomas. Um, one 12th century bishop even claimed that he found the three wise men's skulls. That apparently after they left, they always hung out together, lived together, and somehow died together. We can't properly determine any of the truth of these things. And so no indication of these things are given from scripture. So it's hard to ascertain exactly what their names were, where they ended up, many things. So what do we know? We know they're from the east. I know what you're thinking. Thanks, Brett. Wouldn't figure that one out. And obviously that that is a large geographical area, and there could be many possibilities from where they're from. They could be from Babylon, Persia, Egypt, the Arabian Desert potentially. So we know they're from the east, and they follow the star west to find Jesus. We also know their prominence. These are high-ranking, important officials. They are influential and powerful. Though they may not be kings, that shouldn't make us minimize their influence or their prominence. When you picture the wise men, you shouldn't picture a group of nerds who went on a scientific expedition, which I think sometimes we do. These men were well-respected. With roles in religion and politics in their own land, their position is evident in the incredible wealth that they brought with them. And because of this standing, they most likely did not travel alone, like I've said. We also know that not all Jews return home from the Babylonian captivity. 
Jewish religion would have been known in other eastern centers, and these men would have had knowledge of it. Being that some had stayed back from the Babylonian captivity, there were places in the eastern world where there even would have been centers of Jewish religion and and learning. And so those that would have practiced science or religion would have been well-versed and in knowledge of the Israel God and the promises about this Messiah. The reference in verse 2 to a star uh, has an Old Testament background. So if you remember way back in Numbers chapter 22, there's a story of, of Balak and Balaam. And the book of Numbers recounts the journey of God's people from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. As they journeyed through, <clears throat> they grew in power and might. So as they're moving through this time, they're, they're, they're growing in number, but they're also growing in, in their might. They've won some battles. And this scared uh, Balak, the king of the Moabs. So he called Balaam, a magician or a seer. And Balaam was summoned from the eastern mountains to curse the house of Jacob and the people of Israel so that they would not be able to overtake the Moabites. But as the story continues, God made it clear to Balaam that he is not to curse the Israelites, but to bless them. Balaam obeyed God and blessed Israel three times. Balaam's final oracle begins in Numbers chapter 24, verse 16 and 17. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The last two lines tell of a scepter that will rise from God's people, referring to the one who rules, and a star that will come. This prophesied king is associated with this star, is one who will, as this passage continues, deliver the people of God from their enemies. So the star is what we know the wise men followed, and the star has some prominence in, in some prophecy from the Old Testament. And Balaam's prophecy was widely regarded as a messianic prophecy a picture of the coming anointed one. So it's no coincidence that these wise men are following this sign. The thing that God has foretold has now come to pass. But the prophecy of a star or a light to whom the nations would respond is not only found in Numbers, but also towards the end of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 61-6, it says that, Arise, shine, for you light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, And thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see the radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. We read that nations will come to the light of God's people. And that these nations would bring riches and gifts for worship. It's fascinating that in the book of Matthew which is a gospel with the sole purpose of helping Jewish people understand who Jesus is as the Messiah. That the first people who actually seek him out 
with intent. The first people who seek out Jesus as Messiah are people of the nations, Gentiles, these wise men, who bring great treasures to Jesus. Jesus himself refers to being the star in Revelation chapter 22. As he concludes the revelation to John, he says, I, Jesus, have sent this angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the wise men came from the east, traveled west. What is estimated, again, we don't know how far, hundreds of miles, potentially over a thousand miles. And their natural stopping place in following this star and looking for this king of the Jews that they had come to worship would be Jerusalem, the capital city. And they were sure once they got there, they would find answers because if these men from the east are searching for this king, there must be hundreds, thousands of, of people in Jerusalem looking for the same king, right? And they come to the city and they start asking around and nothing. And as they ask around, this is what sets up their meeting with King Herod. In verse 3 to 4, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And as we continue on, And trembling, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring word, and I too may come and worship him. As soon as Herod was notified that there was some, these wise men were looking for this king of the Jews, this is where the opposition to Jesus started. We often think the opposition to Jesus started when he came on the scene after he turned 30 and started his ministry, but the opposition to Jesus started here. When Herod the king heard that these wise men from the east had come and that they were looking for this king of the Jews, he was troubled. Herod had been given control of Judea by the Romans in around 40 B.C., And uh, he was considered the king of the Jews, but he wasn't actually in a a line of descendants for that throne. He was just given that power by the Romans. And the Romans had made a decision that as they conquered places, it worked a lot better for them to set up kings and monarchs from the people they conquered than to simply put a Roman rule there. So they had started to do that at this time instead of just putting a, a Roman person in charge of everything. And so Herod had become the king, and he was vicious bloodthirsty, and paranoid. Whenever he suspected anyone who may be plotting to take over or might have ill will towards him, he would kill them, get rid of them. Whether that was a wife, a son, it didn't matter. If he was paranoid about potential somebody's was a threat to his rule, they disappeared. So when he hears officials from the east have come to the city looking for the king of the Jews, it troubles him. After all, the Romans had given him this rule. This wasn't his throne by right. Herod's desire to meet with these wise men also speaks of the wise men's high status. Because here are some men coming to Jerusalem, seeking out this thing. And if Herod, if they didn't have status, Herod would have just made them disappear. 
But Herod feared their status. He knew them to be prominent people of eastern countries. And the thing about Herod's rule as the king of Jerusalem is that he was protected from anything west because the Roman Empire was there. Nothing could touch him. But Herod had been attacked from the east. He feared some of the eastern uh, provinces and countries and nations. And he feared upsetting them. And so he desires to come and meet with them. If he can't get rid of them, maybe he can manipulate them. So Herod brings them in again because of their high status, their prominence. Next in verse 4, we read that Herod calls the, the chief priests and the scribes so that they can inquire where Christ is to be born. Friends, this is a fascinating piece of scripture. We glance over this in the Christmas story all the time. This is absolutely fascinating to think about. So the chief priests, which represent Jewish worship, and despite God's purposes in appointing priests, these religious leaders had essentially become a group of corrupt, religiously oriented politicians at the time of Jesus' birth. And the scribes, which represent Jewish law, the scribes were basically lawyers who knew, taught, interpreted the Jewish law, both Old Testament law and traditions that that developed around the law. And this is also the group that opposed Jesus throughout his ministry, and particularly because of some of those traditions that they had brought in. So these groups come together and tell Herod exactly where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then they do nothing. They have these prominent men of science from the east saying, something's going on around here. Like, the thing about this is that these wise men wouldn't have came in the palace and just been there for five minutes. It wouldn't like, hey, we're stopping for a quick coffee, and then we're moving on. They would have been at Herod's palace for days. There would have been several conversations. These religious leaders, these people who should know the truth, would have known what they are speaking. You would think that maybe just one of them, just one, might have been intrigued. Might have walked out and said, you know, Bethlehem's only six miles away. I can get there in a day. Maybe I should go look into this. Or better yet, these wise men are going to leave. Maybe I should follow them. See what they find. Bethlehem is only six miles away. I can get there in a day. But instead, nothing. Not a thing. And friends, there's a danger for each one of us when we read this. When we focus simply on just knowledge of what is true, and we don't allow that knowledge to actually change us, we become just like them. And often, if we're honest with ourselves, when we read through the Gospels, there are times where we read about the things that the Pharisees do and say, and we may relate just as much to them as we do to the actual disciples. And this is something we must be cautious with. They know where Jesus is being born. There are people who are coming and asking questions. And the religious leaders are already indifferent to Jesus. He isn't even two yet. So it's a stark reminder that knowledge of Scripture is not enough on its own. We can know the text perfectly. And then we can completely miss the point. And we need to be careful of that deceptive rebellion of our own hearts. 
And eventually this apathy of the religious leaders turns into outright opposition for Jesus. Like I said, this is where it starts. Here comes these men from the east looking for this king of the Jews. In the Gospel of Matthew, the next time that phrase is used regarding Jesus, he's going to the cross where he's labeled king of the Jews. It's when he's beaten and mocked before his crucifixion. Apathy. We must be careful of apathy. As we continue on in the quotation that Matthew uses of Micah 5.2, we see an emphasis by Matthew to mention Judah twice. Matthew, again, is writing this gospel to help Jewish readers understand who Jesus is as the Messiah, that he is the rightful king from the line of David, from the right place, born in Bethlehem. And so he uses that twice to show this lineage of, of Jesus, that the Messiah must come from this line of Judah. He also changes that Bethlehem is by no means the least of the leaders of, of Judah because God has appointed this place of great prominence in being the birthplace of the Savior. He also mentions that the Messiah will be a shepherd for the people. This also points back to David. David was a shepherd before he was a king. And he was meant to be a shepherd to the people of Israel. Not only him, but his sons and their sons and their sons. And they didn't do a great job of that, but that was the intent. And so Jesus comes as the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd in the line of David. And this is an important overall message in Matthew that he's trying to convey to this Jewish audience as he writes this gospel. He wants to connect the dots between Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and who Jesus is. In verse 7 to 8, we see King Herod start to scheme. As we read in verses 13 to 17 of this chapter, Herod's intention is to kill Jesus. He wants to get rid of this boy who could be king, who could take his rule. The rightful king. But he attempts to deceive the wise men because he can't move against them. He can't share with them his ideas. So he tries to manipulate them. Go and find this king of the Jews and I will worship him. And it seems at this point the wise men believe Herod and they go on their way. In verse 9 it says, They went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them again until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is the verse, and the first time in this verse is we see the star move. And it literally supernaturally leads the wise men to Bethlehem. So they see the star, they, they're looking for the king of the Jews, they go to Jerusalem, and as they depart from Herod, the star reappears and leads them to Bethlehem. There's lots of debate what this star is. Is it some astrological Thing? Is it a constellation? Is it planets that have aligned together? Is it an angel? There's lots of debate about that. Regardless, this star comes, and when they saw the star in verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Like the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night that led the people of God through the wilderness in the Old Testament, the star has now led the wise men to the place where Jesus is. And as they come to this place, they are overjoyed, full of joy. I can't imagine 
the feeling they would have had after this journey. Verse 11 says, in going into the house, this tells us again, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had settled into a residence. It didn't say going into the barn or the cave or wherever Jesus was born, where the manger was. It's going into the house. They're settled. There had been a little bit of time <clears throat> between this, when this little family became and when the wise men had come. And again, we don't know how long, probably months later, and this family is now settled in the house. And regardless of how many months it, <clears throat> regardless of how many months it is after the actual birth night, the response of the wise men uh, cannot be missed. They fall down and they worship him. Out of their joy and their excitement, they see this baby and they fall down and worshiped him. These are men of incredible knowledge, of incredible wealth, and of incredible influence. They would influence kings. They would influence nations in scientific discovery, in political decisions. And here they are laying down in this small house to this baby. I can't even imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt. Here's these strangers from the east, right? It's not like, it's not like they sent a letter and said, hey, we're coming. You, you remember us, right? No. More strangers. They thought they were done with this. And here they are, these men, laying there, worshiping Jesus. And we always talk about the gifts that they bring, but before the gifts ever come out, they are on their face, worshiping the king. Men from the east. People regarded as Gentile pagans. What a sight that must have been for Joseph and Mary. These strange men of prominence in their little house worshiping their infant child. But next they offered these extravagant gifts. And this would point to their great status um, from their respective place of origin and the, the money that they would have. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were extravagant. And it was customary, particularly in the ancient East, to bring gifts when approaching a superior. So these men of influence, these men of prominence, come to Jesus and bring these gifts and say, you are greater than I. Here is my gold. Here is this gift of frankincense because you are greater than I. Some commentators will say that the gifts don't really have any particular significance or symbolism. But rather they are collectively a picture of an extravagantly costly gift and offering towards Jesus. But when you look at history and you look at scripture, it seems that the gifts may have more than just random purpose. If we look at the first gift of gold, it really emphasizes Jesus' royalty. Throughout scripture, gold is associated with royalty. Kings, queens, princes. Take Solomon's wealth described in 1 Kings chapter 10. Gold is mentioned no less than 10 times in 7 verses. Gold is associated with royalty elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 45, verse 9 and 13. Psalm 72, verse 15. 2 Kings, chapter 5. There's many places in, in the Bible alone where gold is mixed with the imagery of someone who is in royalty or high standing. It also fits one of the main thrusts of Matthew's gospel is to show Jesus' kingship. Matthew made clear that Jesus deserves royal honor in chapter 1. He comes from this descendant of honor, of Abraham, of David. And now in, G- in chapter 2, Jesus is receiving that honor through these gifts. 
Frankincense emphasizes Jesus' deity. Frankincense was a perfume and was used in in the Old Testament not only for royal processions, but also in various offerings to God. It was stored in the chamber of the sanctuary. When it is used in the Old Testament, frankincense usually refers to something related to the worship or service of God. It was used preciously. It was not used every day. And it was only for that service of God. And it was only used in those special circumstances and was seen as exceedingly precious. Mir emphasized Jesus' humanity. Mir was a spice or, or a perfume that was used in anointing of men. Some will quickly jump to John 19 that tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph used Mir to prepare Jesus' body for burial in the tomb, which they certainly did. But it was used on men for anointing for several reasons. But most notably, in this gift of Mary, given soon after the birth of Jesus, we get a foretaste of his impending death, the reason that Jesus came, the reason that this baby was born in the first place. This gift of Mary is the symbolism of what will come. And all of these gifts alone, in any quantity, would have been precious. Finally, after verse 12, after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. Regardless of where they all came from, it seemed that they all met in a certain country to come this way as that's where they were returning to. It's significant that they didn't follow Herod's trap or fall into Herod's trap, obviously, but the return home by a different path is significant too, I think, is that not only did they avoid Herod, but I I, I can't can't help but read the story and not believe that their lives were changed. Something significant was different. That there's some symbolism in them leaving a different way. Leaving different after they've encountered Jesus. And I think for us, many of us, that's the reality of our own experience. And when we truly come and encounter who Jesus is and worship him, we are changed. We are not the same. We are not what we were before. So as we conclude, what can the wise men teach us as we enter into this year of transition. Like I said earlier, starting as quickly as next week, Pastor Ed will be here. And we're moving into transition. And I would encourage you, and I want to say this, I would encourage you to think of this year, 2023, as a year of transition. That's what we're going to be doing. And it's right for us to think of it in that way. We can be excited about that. We can be hopeful about that. We can look forward to the things that... Um, God is going to do and that we're going to discuss and work towards. But in transition, there are some, just some stark realities. Things are going to change. There's going to be things that are going to be different. There's going to be things that are asked of us to evaluate and consider and be different. Are you willing? These are important parts of transition. There's going to be times where there's going to be suggestions and discussions and you might sit there and go, I don't really want to do that. But the question that we need to consider will be, God, what are you calling us to be as a church? You have brought this church to Tabor. You've called us here for a purpose. What is that purpose? How do we walk that purpose out? 
How do we be passionate in that purpose for you? How do we continue to grow to be a healthy church? And so my encouragement to you is to have those things on your mind as we move into that. But there are some things from the wise men that can help us as we consider these things. The first thing is this. These men stepped out in faith in a radical way. Like, let's say, let's say you saw a supernatural star in the sky and you knew enough that it was different, right? Most of us don't go on crazy expeditions for hundreds of miles following something like that, right? They didn't have an exact location. They just headed to Jerusalem, hoping that someone would be able to tell them where they were supposed to go, and nobody even knew. That's a leap of faith. These were intelligent men, well-informed, well-financed, influential. They had lots of responsibilities wherever they're from. But instead, they step out and they take this journey. We want to find the king of the Jews. We've read things about him. We've read these prophecies. We've heard these things. There's this star. Some things seem to line out. Why don't we go and see if we can find this king? Following a star to find a child hundreds of miles to the west of them, that entire journey takes faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, it is a chapter about faith, particularly people in the Old Testament. And the faith that they have in the things that God asked them to do. I think as we walk out this new year, we have to be willing to take a step of faith. And often when we think about faith, we think about a single interaction with Jesus. That we've stepped out in faith one time when we've accepted him as our savior. And then that faith ends. The transaction is done. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and I'm good. But the reality is that this is an everyday thing. That we step out in faith. When we serve people, we step out in faith. When we share our our convictions and our beliefs, we step out in faith. When we try to honor the Lord with our lives and the worship of of how we live, we're stepping out in faith. We are saying, God, your ways are better than the world's ways. Your ways are the ways that I want to live. I want to step out in faith. You and I live in an affluent society. There's no way around that. We are incredibly wealthy. And that wealth pushes up against our faith all of the time. Why would I step out in faith when I can fix this issue with money? Why would I step out in faith when I pay a pastor to to do things like that? Why would I step out in faith? We can come up with all of these reasons why we ourselves wouldn't step out of faith. But I want to remind you that we are called to be people of faith. Not of apathy. Not of fear. People of joy. People of hope. When's the last time that you really stepped out in faith? In something that God was calling you to do? as we move into this year, there's going to be things that we're going to be uncomfortable with. There's going to be things that we'll be walking in and we'll go, hmm, that's not what I thought was going to happen, or that's a little different. Maybe we 
willing to step out in faith and ask God, God, what do you have for us? God, if this is where you're going, we're going to go with you. Will we walk in that faith? Or will it simply be a pursuit of the things that we can control and hold on to tightly? Or will we step out? We see that incredible decision by the wise men to step out in faith and follow something. And as they did, they're rewarded for that faith in finding Jesus. And though they come prepared with gifts, they fall down reverently in worship. The second thing is that they were truth seekers. As much as the journey for them was a step of faith, these were men who were passionate about truth. But not just the knowledge of what was true, that knowledge that we see in the chief priests and the scribes, They also wanted to see that knowledge lived out. They wanted to see the conclusion of that knowledge. There's every reason to believe that they would have scrolls of Isaiah, knowledge of uh, of Daniel, um, many other ancient texts from from the Hebrew people to piece together this messianic um, prophecy about Jesus. They would have known much of the Old Testament that was known at the time, much of the Torah, much of the prophets, they collected this, and that's where the whole thing of the star comes from, is out of these prophecies, they see this star, and they start to recognize the difference of this star compared to what they're used to looking at, and they go back to their different readings, different things, and they come across these prophecies in the Hebrew prophets. And then they seek out what these prophecies mean. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened to you. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those that seek him. The reward is that he answers us when we seek him. That when we seek him, we find him. I think for us as we move into this new year, into this time of transition, there is lots of hope. But we also have to be willing to do our part and seek after the things that God has for us. To push ourselves, to encourage one another. Not just to simply sit and and hope for everything to go the way it's supposed to, but to be active. To be people that seek truth. Certainly people who seek the truth of the word, that we might be individuals that grow in the word daily, that we might be people who come and grow corporately, but also that we would be seeking deeply and passionately what is true for the purpose of the church. What does Jesus call the church to be? Not as what is my perception of the church, or what would I like my comfortable church to be, but what is the actual perception that Jesus has for the church? What is his calling for the people of God? Am I willing to seek after that, or just what I want? That's something that we might be needed to be challenged with. Jesus, what do you call us to do? Will I seek after the truth that you have for us? The truth that you have called me, the truth that you have gifted me to be part of the church, not only part of the church, but active in the church. So just as the wise men were truth seekers, I think as we go into this year, we need to be people who will seek truth as well continually 
not just for our own growth, but also to seek what is true that God would be calling us to. Third, they chose to worship and be changed by Jesus. The text this morning is all about the intention of the wise men looking for Jesus for the hope of one thing, to worship him. They come to Jerusalem and said, where is this king? We've come to worship him. And then they find Jesus in Bethlehem. They fall down and they worship him. And they're changed by this encounter. If not, why else would they stick it out? If they're not changed by the encounter, why would they not go back to Herod? We know that what Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We know that Jesus transforms our lives by his sacrifice on the cross for those that would put their trust and faith in him. But he's also continually working in each one of us. As we come and worship Jesus with our lives, he continually works through his spirit to change us, to change our perspectives to be more of his, to break our heart for the things that break his. Paul writes also to the Romans in in chapter 12. Paul encourages us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul encourages us that even in our minds, just our minds alone, that we are always needing to be growing. We always need to be discerning. We always need to be active. Our faith is the same way. How we live out our faith is the same way. We don't just accept Jesus and live this stagnant life that we are so guilty of in North America. There is a passion that comes with following Jesus, a joy that cannot be taken away, a love that we cannot be experienced anywhere else in our lives. And so as we come and we worship, as we become people who truly worship Jesus more and more, it changes us. And I firmly believe as we walk through this process that Pastor Ed will be bringing us through this year, that Jesus will be changing each one of us as we worship him, as we are obedient to him, as we choose to follow him. Just as the wise men come and they worship, they are changed, their lives have changed. Each one of us, as we've accepted Jesus, our lives have changed, but it doesn't stop. The Spirit is always beckoning us to be more like Christ. As we walk out this new year, my encouragement to you is to be disciplined in the ways that you can follow Jesus. Be people of the Word. Not people who have the Word. Be people of the Word. Live out what it says. Don't just be people of knowledge. Be people of action as well. Pray. Not just for people, not just for yourself, but worship God in prayer. Thank Him in prayer. Love Him in prayer. Have a relationship with Him in prayer. Look for ways that you might serve in this place, in the ministries of this church, in the gifting that you have. What might God be calling you to worship in a way of serving? Maybe to the community. Is there somebody that you can mentor or disciple? Or some way that you can help another person grow in their faith? These are things that we should wrestle with as Jesus changes us as we worship him.
often when we encounter Jesus or something's good, we go, wow, that was really good. Or I read this book, wow, that was really good. And the book goes on the shelf or the, the encounter goes in the memory and nothing changes. My encouragement would be to walk out the things that Jesus has for you and allow him to change your heart, to transform your mind, and to continue to be hands and feet of Jesus. The reality of the Christmas story is that God sends Jesus to come for the task that he has. To live, to be our example, to bring hope, but to die for the sins of the world so that they might be free and not found in condemnation. But after Jesus' resurrection, God sends the church. God sends you and me, and he sends the church to fulfill the purposes that God has for the world. And so my prayer for you is that you would embrace that and that you would walk that out as we move into transition in 2023. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can come and we can spend time together this morning. And uh, Lord, it, it, it's great to be able to spend time in your word, but Father, it's, it's also great to be able to start a new year together too. And so we're thankful for your words. We're thankful for the example of the wise men. Help us to be wise in seeking you, in stepping out in faith, and in worshiping you. Jesus, we want to be people who are obedient to you, who are passionate about you. Where we, we encounter those that don't know you, that they would see you in us. Fill us by your spirit in this way. That we would be great ambassadors for you in this world. That we would be light in the darkness. That we would be hope to the hopeless and that we would be your hands and feet that you call us to. We are so grateful that you came to take our sin. And we don't want to just sit on that or ignore that or be apathetic towards it. Father, we want to embrace all that Jesus did for us and live that out. So help us to do that. That's what we pray. Help us as we move into transition this next year. And all the hope that we have in it, help us to do our part for the things that you're calling each of us to do. Whether we're an attendee, a member, in leadership, wherever we are, help us to be actively seeking you out. That we would be people who step out in faith in the things that you call us to. And that we would be passionate followers of your son. We pray this in your name.